Welcome to the University of California San Francisco Sports Medicine Podcast featuring Dr. Nira Fundia, Dr. Brian Feely, and Dr. Drew Lansdowne discussing hot topics in sports medicine and society. We hope you enjoy our podcast and look forward to hearing from you. Welcome everyone to our UCSF Sports Medicine Podcast, 68 Weeks with myself, Dr. Nara Fundia, Dr. Brian Feely, and Dr. Drew Lansdowne, who is not with us today. Uh, today we have the pleasure of after having Dr. Zubin Master from Mayo Clinic. He is a PhD uh, and a specialist in the eth biomedical ethics of stem cells um, and various different regenerative medicine topics. So we once again thank you for joining us, Dr. Master. Maybe Thanks for um, having me. Oh, of course. Maybe um, just start out, tell us a little bit about your background and, and kind of how you got to, to where you are and your interest in this. It certainly wasn't a linear path. Uh, I, my undergrad and my PhD are in biomedical research. So I studied cell signaling uh, as part of my PhD. I then made the transition and wanted to go and work ideally for the government and do policy work. So I did a postdoc in bioethics and health policy at the University of British Columbia and at Dalhousie University. I'm Canadian by birth. Uh, and um, then I got my dream job at uh, Health Canada, developing regulations on assisted reproductive technologies and embryo and related research. Uh, but for a number of reasons, I then uh, decided to go back to academia. I always Bioethics blew my mind. Uh, I thought it was a great field. Uh, I love talking about ethical issues. I think deep down, even what drove me to go into genetics um, was actually the ethical issues, but I never thought about going into bioethics. I thought about going into the science. And um, at some point my um, in bioethics, I actually focused more around stem cell research and ethical issues around embryos. That was really the big thing at the time. Um, and that was a big topic. And so I went more into those types of, uh, that type of ethical and policy issue. And yeah, that's, that's pretty much what uh, drove me to go into bioethics. And, uh, you know, um, Mayo is a pretty cool place to work. I do a lot of research, uh, which is what I enjoy the most, but I also get to teach some stem cell ethics and policy uh, to students as well. And uh, of course, the things we don't always like to do service work. <laughs> did, did you feel a little bit when, you know, kind of when you're going through your educational process, particularly with ethics, that the, the approach in Canada was different than the US? Um, how much crossover is there or is it kind of more of a global, you know, principle in terms of how we approach these issues? Uh, no, I think I think how we approach the issues are, are very similar. There's certainly differences in the way US regulates things and uh, what Canada does, but I think, you know, the sort of the, you know, the concerns that people have had, uh, you know, may be around, can we use a human embryo to derive a stem cell? Or, you know, should we quell the unproven stem cell uh, intervention industry? All of those types of questions are salient to both countries. Their approaches may, may be different, but that I think depends on, you know, who's in power, politics, all kinds of other reasons. So you have a really interesting job and it's pretty unique within what, it, at least for orthopedic surgeons, there's not a lot of um, biomedical ethicists practicing orthopedic surgery. What do right. you like most about your job? I think I probably like doing the research and mentoring. Uh, I like seeing uh, more junior scholars learn, uh, not necessarily only about stem cells or stem cell science, but just learning you know, the tricks of the trade on how to get papers, how to 
um, you know, pitch things for specific journals, how to maybe get proposals or grant funding. I think those are the things that I like to the most about my job. And honestly, I love doing empirical bioethics research. I get to talk, my job is pretty much talking um, to patients, seeing how they think about things, talking to physicians, seeing how they talk to patients, seeing where differences may lie or seeing where similarities are. And in that sense, I get to try to understand uh, what makes a patient wanna go and get an unproven stem cell or what makes them not wanna get an unproven stem cell treatment. And the other major cool part about my job, I get to translate things. And I never really saw that when I was doing my PhD in biomedical science. You know, we always talk about the end result. Um, uh, you know, it could help with cancer therapies. That's pretty much the area I worked in. But at the end of the day, I didn't think my, you know, finding a molecule and seeing its function is necessarily going to translate into a therapy. I, I had a hard time picturing that. I, I, I know it could, but... It, I didn't expect, but in at Mayo, I, it's pretty good. I can I can take my findings and translate it, which is what I want to do. So, you know, before I retire, if I can make a, a a true tried and tested product that can maybe help a patient, I think that that'd be a a good thing to end off with. Yeah, I don't disagree. Sometimes it's hard to get the translational work to really feel translational. Um, before we ask you some more specific questions, I wanted to ask you to just define what you mean when you say unproven stem cell mm. therapies. Right. Great, great question. So honestly, there is no clear definition of what an unproven stem cell therapy is. Sometimes people use those words interchangeably with unregulated um, as well. So it really depends. Not everything is regulated in the same way. So, you know, the words unregulated may not necessarily uh, uh, be pertinent. Unproven generally means that they haven't been proven potentially through, you know, clinical trials, but certainly not enough science has been done to show that the intervention, the, the therapy, the treatment is safe and or effective. Um, but really, I think that the unproven industry is, has certain characteristics, right? So it's online, it's direct to consumer, uh, it's been characterized with a lot of misinformation to sort of, you know, at, get patients to buy into an intervention, but there's there's no necessary back, backing of it. It's obviously for-profit, out-of-pocket. No, Very few insurance companies will ever be covering it, at least at this stage. Um, and um, yeah, so I think that's a, a better way of sort of characterizing the unproven industry. There's no like true and, you know, true hard definition of it. In that, in that same light, um, you know, how do you feel that patients get access to this information? Like what's most effective at kind of grabbing them in? Is it TV? Is it websites? Is it just hearing their neighbor get it? Like what have you noticed um, kind of in, through this process? Yeah, so I can start by probably saying that we don't actually have that much data on how patients are getting to it. We, and by we, uh, my collaborator and colleague, uh, Dr. Shane Shapiro and Professor Jennifer Arthurs, who work at Mayo Clinic in Florida, uh, we just put out a paper, I, yeah, this year, 2022, uh, I think it came out in summer in, in new, um, NPJ Regenerative Medicine, where we looked at um, a group of patients that came in for a RegMed consult, a regenerative medicine consult at the Florida Clinic. As they came in, in their intake form, we gave them three simple questions, one of which was 
as, as you were questioning, where did you get this information? How did you hear about it? And so this was the first study to actually find out how did they, you know, how did they hear about these things? And um, not surprisingly, the, the number one was internet searches, not specific websites, but literally probably Googling it or, you know, using some kind of a search engine to Google stem cell therapy, things like that. Um, a lot of them also said that they heard about it from a stem cell clinic. So 40% of the, I think we had like over 500 patients, um, uh, 40% of them said we actually contacted a stem cell clinic. Now, I don't know what that means. Uh, did they speak to the physician? Did they just, you know, maybe that meant just looking up the website? I'm, I'm not 100% sure. But other than internet searches, the second most, uh, the second biggest way was uh, interpersonal communication. They talked to their friends. They talked to their family. They may have talked to a conventional medical physician, or they would have talked to one of those providers that's giving that unproven uh, stem cell treatment as well. So those are the big ways. Social media wasn't up there. Television and what we call, in you know, my world, traditional media, television, radio, newspapers, physical newspapers, uh, mm. they weren't really, um, uh, you know, that prevalent. Um, the other area, people have said that sometimes uh, a lot of these clinics will put their intervention on clinicaltrials.gov. That also, we, I think we had like less than a percent of people said that they heard about it from clinicaltrials.gov. So it's primarily, I think, talking to people uh, and of course, doing their internet searches. Yeah, I think it also interesting, you know, maybe when you looked at this as well too, is how many of these individuals are seeking that as their primary treatment mm -hmm. or is it because they have felt like, you know, shunned by the conventional treatment. Like I have knee arthritis, now I'm going to go to the specialist or they have knee pain and they go right there. Have you found anything else about that? Is it more of a shunning of traditional medicine or seeking of this as their primary treatment? Both. Um, so we, we have an NIH grant where we're looking at what are the factors that make people either go and get a stem cell treatment or not go. And so we have a unique way of actually making two groups, okay? Those that are what we call high seekers, they really want to get one of these unproven interventions, and low seekers. We have found a range of different factors like desperation, trust or distrust, right? They may trust a conventional provider and distrust the person that's trying to sell them a treatment, or maybe the reverse. Uh, they may have had a, actually a bad experience with conventional providers and now are being sort of pushed away from them and you know lured, if you will, by the unproven stem cell provider. So in that latter scenario, we have found several patients who have, and, and this is not just from our study, there's a few other studies that actually show that you know we have lost all hope. The doctor said that they couldn't give us anything Thing. Um, and then a couple of our interviews that we've done actually shared quite, you know, not really nice stories of doctors dismissing them, basically, you know, uh, blaming their condition on their mental health issues. People have suffered depression. People have had even suicidal ideations. And we don't, you know, we, this is, again, what they tell us. So I think in some cases, yeah, they've had some pretty bad experiences that kind of pushed them towards something alternative, but it, that's not with everybody. Some people mm -hmm. 
like stem cells because they consider them natural and as sort of an alternative form of stem cell treatment. We do have a little bit of conspiratorial thinking, the idea that big pharma is trying to keep everybody sick and the guy in the corner is giving you an unproven stem cell, but he's the pioneer trying to truly help you because pharma just wants to make money and you know the FDA is trying to you know, keep pharma happy, like those types of conspiratorial things. So it, it's really a gamut of different um, values and viewpoints uh, for driving people either to get or not get one of these unproven treatments. Kind of on the same lines, do you see when people go looking for these treatments, is it kind of all the way across the spectrum of socioeconomic status and wealth and poverty, or is it one subset or the other or a couple of subsets that seem more prone to want to get these treatments? Okay, good question. Uh, no data really out there. Um, I can probably tell you that uh, there has certainly a certain degree of um, income is necessary, right? These are for profit and they could be, you know, something cheap, like maybe PRP or something a lot more expensive where people are spending tens of thousands of dollars. Um, so certainly if uh, we've talked to a few patients that have, that are, they're gonna get one, but they just don't have enough money to get it from the specific clinic they have now identified as the one that gives the best quote stem cells. So definitely one of the environmental constraints would be, um, money. The other environmental constraint would be, well, if you have a very debilitating condition where you're potentially wheelchair bound or, or you know, bedridden, uh, that's not going to be easy to perhaps go across the border to a clinic, let's say, you know, in Mexico or something, uh, something like that. Uh, that's going to be harder, uh, even if you live closely, uh, close to the border. So those could also be um, uh, factors, geographic distance. Um, we haven't seen, we've tried very hard to look at racial and ethnic diversity. There doesn't seem to be, uh, there, there's no quantifiable way to show that, you know, certain groups are getting and certain groups aren't. Uh, but, you know, we've tried to recruit people of, you know, racial and ethnic minorities, and there seems to be no reason why they want or not want uh, a stem cell. If anything, probably the economic issue, um, as you mentioned, Dr. Feely, is probably the big one. Kind of along those same lines, you know, you have a recent paper about the unproven stem cell intervention, and you call it a, a global problem. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, how do you how do you kind of see this kind of playing out in other parts of the world, and kind of the the kind of the, the feeling of stem cell and these interventions in other in other countries? Yeah, it's a good question. So, I do think it's a it's a global problem, right? If you so we started to think about unproven stem cells. I think it was around. I think the first paper may have come out around two thousand five-ish, six, seven, something like that. By, by around 2009, we started to know that there was an industry. At that time, the industry was what we thought were in countries that had potentially lax regulations or certainly enforcement, right? They, they you know, these clinics were proliferating in countries like China, India, Russia, Dominican Republic, Mexico. We didn't see them in the US, Australia, the UK, Japan. We didn't see them in Canada, things like that. But in 2014 was the first paper that came out to show that there's more clinics coming out in the US. Then there were two major papers that came out in 2016. One was by John Rasko's group in Australia. Australia, did you show that I think Australia, oh, Japan, 
and I believe the UK had a, a massive rise in the number of clinics. And then another paper by uh, doctors Lee Turner and Paul Knopfler, which actually focused only on the US and at the time showed that there was about 600 clinics. And then there has been more papers that showed, you know, clinics in Canada. And, and, and now, even in the paper that you mentioned, we, we I think, had over like maybe two dozen um, clinics that we identified just through a quick glance at the academic literature. So there's probably, it's literally a worldwide phenomenon. So in, in that paper, we were conceptualizing that maybe we need to think more globally, you know, maybe we need to think about more global types of solutions. Um, and then, you know, we focused on potentially harmonizing regulations because regulations are, are, are done intra-nationally, uh, right? So within a country. And there are differences uh, between uh, countries, but we were also looking at, you know, education, right? So my, my whole shtick and my focus is to try to develop persuasive communication, to develop interventions by knowing how people look at advertisements, how look at people look at warnings, all those factors that I mentioned that could, you know, impact somebody to go and get an unproven stem cell or not. By taking all that data, can we develop persuasive communication that can certainly not hide, you know, we're not trying to be manipulative, we're trying to be persuasive, uh, we're not trying to hijack your reasoning. In fact, we want to instill a sense of caution so you, your, your rational and reasoning faculties will consider that information. We're also trying to not give a finger-wagging tone. Uh, we're using empathic communication to say, listen, the choice is yours. But, you know, we haven't as a society or as a stem cell community really focused on better ways to, we, we've talked about sort of, you know, killing the, 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 we haven't focused on the market side. Can we quell the, sorry, the demand side of it? We focused on the market by trying to discipline doctors, trying to make lawsuits, things like that, trying to develop regulations, but we haven't focused on the demand. Can we change people's perspectives to make them at least think twice about getting something potentially riskier, um, you know, stem cells for Parkinson's or ALS uh, or autism um, and, can, can we do that? We haven't done much around that kind of education. So I think that's probably an area that certainly globally we should all focus on amongst others. Um, and then, you know, we speak about it globally as well, too. I, my training, I do a lot of pediatric and adolescent patients. Mm -hmm. um, and one thing I've seen is an increasing amount of interest to utilize these in kids. Like we don't even have the data yet for adults. How do you approach that ethically when, when parents are the ones who are then saying, my children need these unproven treatments? Yeah. I would say probably with the same approaches that we are using to, you know, inform patients who are adults versus patients who are uh, kids, especially where we can't get a scent, uh, you know, patients that are very young. Uh, and, and of course, we're relying on the consent of the parents. I think to some degree, we're not going to be able to just curtail the market with a magic wand and, and say, you know, oh, we're, you know, problem solved, right? I think we need to use multi, like multiple modes to, to uh, potentially quell the issue. Um, and in that sense, I think that, yeah, it, you know, giving people more information, maybe even targeting it 
for around pediatric conditions uh, would be good. And, and one of those areas is autism. There's been a lot of work uh, around using blood or blood products or blood type stem cells to treat autism. And the clinical trials haven't been, you know, that great. Yeah, I think that brings up a good point. We're relatively lucky in orthopedic surgery that we're treating arthritis, we're treating sometimes tendinopathies, but overall, they're pretty low stakes compared to some of the other conditions, especially when you're looking at people going and spending so much money for a neurologic cure. Um, My final question is um, kind of big picture, especially since you wear both hats as a ethicist and as a uh, recovering um, basic science biologist. Um, Do you think the U.S. is approaching this correctly? Are we too conservative in what we're allowing? Should we allow more than minimally manipulated cells for certain conditions? Mm -hmm. That's a great, good question. Um, I think that stem cells were sort of the new kids on the block uh, about a decade ago, for sure we didn't know how to regulate cell-based therapies, right? And so to some degree, the FDA along with every other regulatory agency was catching up to that. And so, you know, were there bumps on the road? Absolutely. But I do think that the FDA, you know, they've done a lot. They've made guidance, they've uh, uh, made education, they've tried to do as much as they can. They've even tried to create pathways that could uh, speed up the process of review for certain types of regenerative uh, conditions. So in that sense, I think it's been great. Can we allow more than minimal manipulation? From what little you know, I remember in my cell biology days, pretty much when you take a cell out of my body and you put it just about anywhere else on any kind of medium, it's behavior change. So, you know, you start spinning things down. Yeah, that's probably pretty, you know, low key, but you take it out of its environmental and biological context, cells behave differently. And if we don't test how that those cells behave in a patient, well, stem cells can migrate, stem cells can form tumors if undifferentiated and not controlled, stem cells can do whatever on earth they want, we may see adverse uh, conditions. So, you know, Dr. Feely, as you mentioned, in orthobiologics, A, you're treating adults, and, you know, there's been at least abundance amount of data to show that safety is pretty decent out there, right? Short from potentially, you know, contaminating, uh, you know, uh, uh, cells that you may may get, it hasn't made, you know, that much harm. Is there pain? Sure, things like that. Uh, But efficacy, especially for various other areas, still needs to be, uh, I think, demonstrated. We have, we're starting to get clinical evidence, but is it, you know, sort of that tier one level evidence, you know, large RCTs showing, you know, clear demonstration of safety and efficacy, um, that I think still needs to, to move forward. The other areas well, are yeah. all over. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for joining us today, uh, Dr. Master. It was just, we could have like hours and hours of talk about this. We're just it's touching cool the topic. surface, but <laughs> um, but uh, thank you once again, and uh, hopefully we'll we'll uh, we'll touch base again soon. We appreciate it. Thank you.